Good morning. So I feel like it's been forever since I've been up here. It feels like it. Um, it's been three Sundays ago since we talked about Ephesians. So we're just going to pick right back up where we left off. But I will first do a little bit of a recap so we can remember where we were at. So the uh, Sunday, three Sundays ago, we crossed over the divide in the letter to the Ephesians. Remember, the letter is divided into two halves, um, chapters one through three, therefore, and then chapters four through six. So we started in chapter four, three Sundays ago. A few of the things that we covered, unity is emphasized over and over and over again in the letter to the Ephesians. It's a huge theme. So Paul starts out in chapter four by hitting on that same point. He tells us that we are one body. We have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one father. He says the word one to emphasize unity seven times. And the use of seven portrays the complete and perfect unity of God's people through the Spirit. We talked about grace again. We've talked about it so much. God's unmerited favor toward us in offering his gift of salvation to us, Lord. But we've also talked about it in terms of he gives grace and gifts to specific people. And as those people in the body exercise that grace gift, they themselves become gifts to the body that builds the body up, that equips the body and brings it to a place of maturity in Jesus. Um, in chapter four, verse 15, we talked about the meaning of the word head. Jesus there is described as the head of the church. In Greek, that word head is kephale. We discussed how the word kephale has a different um, range of meaning in Greek than our English word head has in our language. It's not a one-to-one -one match as far as all the different nuances of meaning. We talked about how in verse 15, um, head there means source. Jesus is the head of the church, and from him the whole body proceeds. All the needs of the body proceed from him, just like a trailhead or headwaters. Um, we've talked a lot about the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, how honor and shame are completely redefined in the new creation. They're totally redefined in the kingdom. So things are no longer according to the way the world does it. Um, God's victory is highlighted, and um, his victory over the powers is highlighted rather than our ability as human beings to operate in these traditional systems. So that's a little bit of review and what we talked about last time. I don't know if you saw when you came in today, but there's new packets. Um, they're on this back table back here, and I'll talk a little bit about what's in them. They're short. It's just a little kind of take-home thing for people. So if you didn't get one, you could grab one. That'd be great. Brent has, um, has a handful of them, and I'll refer to those as we go through uh, the lesson today. Last time we talked, we also discussed these different lists of giftings that are all throughout the New Testament. And this is actually in your packet because it's an excellent reference, uh, something that you can take home and look at and go over on your own time because there's a lot of different places to look. So these various lists of giftings are all throughout the New Testament. You can see one here in Romans chapter 12, and then on the right here 
It'll give you the scripture reference where you can find that list of giftings. There's another one. There's actually two in the letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, one in chapter 12 here, and then one in uh, another one later in chapter 12. And then we have, of course, the one here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And then there's this other uh, summarized one in 1 Peter. So you'll notice there's definitely some overlap and some similarities in these uh, lists of giftings, but also they're slightly different. And this seems to make a point. The point is that rather than there being these rigid definitions of the different giftings that are given to the church, these letters were written to specific communities. And those communities had specific needs. Think about that. They're in different areas. They have different people. They have different needs as far as how they need to be equipped. So those churches are gifted. The Lord gives them things to build them up in their specific needs. So that seems to be why there's some variation here. Different churches need different things. So as you receive gifts from the Lord... To build up the church, you might find often that you are strongest in one particular gifting. You may really identify with one of these things in these all of these different lists. Oftentimes, though, you will find that you overlap, that it's not just one thing, but that you also operate in other areas. And sometimes this really fun thing happens where you find yourself ministering in a gift that you just never had a connection with, that you never would have seen yourself doing. But remember, we're all empowered by the same Holy Spirit. He lives in all of us, and sometimes he does things through us and in us that are surprising. But he will use all of us to build up and equip each other as the church. Ultimately, as I look at this all of these different lists, and I think about the giftings that I see in front of me and all of you, what comes to me is this is not as systematized as I would like it to be. I, I often don't think that things in Christianity are as systematic, as clear-cut as we would like them to be. Um, as human beings, we tend to want to bring order. And I think that's part of how we're created. It's part of how we are wired. Think about we're imagers of God, and that's what God does. He brings order and chaos. That's what he did in creation. So we're imagers of God. We share some of those same qualities. We want to bring order to chaos and bring function to things that we see. Uh, sometimes our order bringing uh, goes too far, and we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. We end up systematizing the Holy Spirit right out of things. Are you familiar with how that can happen at all? Um, we know that we do this. We know that we have the, uh, the capability to end up limiting the Holy Spirit. Think about the way people talk. They'll say things like, don't put God in a box, or think outside the box. We say things like that because we are aware of what we do and our tendency to systematize. Sometimes people will see something that is working really well in a particular church or in a certain ministry, and they'll think, okay, if I can systematize this, if I can put it into a book, then I can replicate it. We can get it out to all these different churches, and we can replicate and have the same process of success in these other places. 
And oftentimes, somewhere in that process, at some point, we lose touch with the Spirit, who is the one who brings life to the church. And we can forget that while He works in us and through us, ultimately, the Spirit is the proliferator of the church. Ultimately, the Spirit is the one who builds the church. And we don't want to systematize Him right out of it. We don't want to do that. So I'm thinking, and I don't want to just say that this is always bad. I just, we should be on our guard that we don't miss him in this process. But there's a question I want to ask. It's what if we were just to submit ourselves to the spirit and let him do what he's going to do? We just completely submit ourselves to him and let him make whatever he wants um, instead of depending on our own methodologies. And I just want to point this out to you because <clears throat> my next slide is going to move into definitions of the different gifts. And I want you to understand that it's not about a rigid, canned definition. And that every church body is somehow lacking if you don't have someone who just plugs right into this definition and we now we've got to scramble to find something. I don't ever want to do that. I want to see you, the people in front of me, and I want to nurture and help grow whatever the Spirit is doing in you, and He will make it work in the church. And that, that is what is important. It's people and nurturing what God is doing in them, not finding people that can fit into these canned slots, okay? So just keep that in mind as we look at these definitions. Don't think of them as being so um, rigid that there's no flexibility. So first, we'll talk about the apostle. So there is the capital A, apostle, and the lowercase a, apostle. So for the capital A, apostle, these are the people who are in Jesus' circle. Um, the people who saw the risen Jesus, and they were commissioned by him. The lowercase apostle, <clears throat> these, this is the way that we would think of apostles today. Uh, the thing that mainly stands out about them is they're leading new efforts of church planting and building in new centers in ministry. When I think of an apostle today, I think of someone who is spearheading new movements in the church. They're the cutting edge at that front line of having these ideas and bringing forth new concepts in the church. And there's some examples over here of people who are talked about as little a apostles, um, like Andronicus, my girl Junia, and Barnabas. So you could find some examples there um, in your take-home packet. So next would be the prophet. And this definition really helped me understand how prophets function. I actually kind of found it quite beautiful and revelatory. This is a person steeped in the scriptures and in the nuances of the present cultural moment who can discern the will of God for specific people and communities and address them with authority. So we all know that the word is alive, right? That it's living and active, and it still speaks into our present context today. It's supernatural like that. So a prophet sees the cultural moment and can discern what's happening there in the spirit, and they see how the word speaks directly into our current situation. And then they're able to address specific people and communities with authority in that way. They're able to really bring the living word forth and speak right to a person or community in a moment, that, in a way that is very edifying and builds that person in that community up. That's the role of the prophet. 
then we get into the evangelist. This is someone who is uh, uniquely equipped to share the good news about Jesus in a very effective way. Um, it says this noun is used only of two people, Philip of Caesarea, who is different than the apostle Philip, and it's used of Timothy. Um, it's only used two times as a noun, the evangelist. Most often it's used as a verb, and it just means to announce good news. And that widens the reference of what it means to evangelize considerably. You know, we should all in our own different ways be sharing and announcing the good news of the kingdom. The next one, which was really interesting to me, and I so think that the modern church needs to hear this, is pastor. This literally means shepherd, someone who cares about and can effectively guide the spiritual growth of a community of disciples. It does not mean someone who stands in front on Sundays and talks. <laughs> um, it is primarily in the New Testament, not a noun or a title. It's a verb. So when you're pastoring people, you're shepherding, you're caring for them, you're helping them grow, you're making sure that the little lambs stay up with the flock, that no one's left behind. That's what pastoring is. So if someone in your life looks at you and says, wow, I really see a gift of pastoring in you that's starting to develop, don't lose your mind. <laughs> it doesn't mean, oh, I really see that like you're going to have to lead a church and do all the things, because that's not what it means. It's like I see something in you that you really care for people, and that you speak into people's lives, and that you nurture and help grow. Like you're a mother and a father. That's basically what that means. So focus more on verb, shepherding, pastoring, and less on pastor, capital P. The next one is the teacher, someone with a growing knowledge of the scriptures and the story of Jesus, who's able to explain and help people adopt a Christian imagination and its corresponding lifestyle. This is Paul through and through. Just think about the structure of the letter to the Ephesians. In chapters one through three, he's sharing with you the apocalyptic worldview, who Jesus is, what he did, what that means for us how we, in the truest sense of our identity, are seated in the heavenly realms, ruling and reigning with Christ. And that is who we are. He drives that home over and over again in chapters 1 through 3. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he shows you how to apply that truth, how to live your life in light of your true identity as reigning as a new creation. Um, he's the ultimate teacher. He's the perfect example of how this works. The apocalyptic imagination and how you apply that. Paul's great at that. So seeing all of these things laid out and how they work, can you see how they work together and how you end up with this dynamic worldwide church, how all of these things function to build this uh, dynamic body that has this really important role in the world. Now we'll move into the next section. This is the next movement of chapter four. And it starts here in verse 17. And this movement actually goes through the beginning of chapter five. It goes through verse two. So that is different, obviously, than probably all of your Bible translations. And um, if you don't like it, that's okay. <laughs> um, 
But I think as you, as I read through it, you'll see the natural transition as we just kind of read through the whole thing. Starting in verse 17. Therefore, I say, and I testify by the Lord, that you should walk no longer as the nations walk in the futility of their mindset, having been in dark in their mindset, estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance which is in them on account of the hardness of their heart, who, after making themselves calloused, they gave themselves over to a lack of self-control, resulting in deeds of every kind of impurity, along with insatiable desire. But in such a way, you did not learn the Messiah, if indeed you have heard of him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus, that y'all are to take off the old humanity of y'all's former way of life, which is being corrupted by its deceptive desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new humanity, which has been created in accordance with God, in justice and true piety. Therefore, having put off the lie, speak truth each one with his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun set on your anger, and don't give an opportunity to the slanderer. The one who steals, let him no longer steal, but rather let him labor, producing good with his own hands, so that he can have something to share with the one who has need. Any rotten word, don't let it come out of y'all's mouth, but only what is good for building up what is needed, so that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness and anger and wrath and blasphemy, let it be taken from you, along with all wickedness. But be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God and the Messiah forgave you. Therefore, become imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as the Messiah loved us and gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a pleasant aroma. All right, a few things to focus on. Let's go back into verse 17 and see if you recognize some overlap, something that a theme that Paul is hitting on again, something we've already talked about. He starts here by saying, don't walk as the nations walk. And he gives you a list. What does it look like to walk as the nations walk? He breaks off right here and he gives, he begins to qualify what that looks like. And it sounds a lot like what he talked about in chapter two, right? Where he said that we were dead in our transgressions. We walked according to the passions of the flesh. We walked according to those fleshly mindsets and we were under the influence of the uh, powers of the air. And that was how we walked. He's saying, don't walk that way anymore. And he says of these, these ones walking like the nations did, that they have made themselves calloused. That's an interesting um, way to put something. It's very visual. How do you form, how do you build up a callus, say like on your hands? Well, it has everything to do with repetition, right? A repetitive motion. I've done this a lot where I'm raking my leaves or whatever in my yard and uh, you're doing this over and over again and pretty soon you get all of this dead skin that's forming on your hand and it's covering up that raw 
fresh flesh that actually has sensation, that can feel pain. So it's the same way with sin. Um, Living according to the flesh is such that the longer you do it, the more repetition there is, the deeper it leads you into deception. You're no longer able to feel. Your ignorance increases. The more you do it, the more ignorant you are of your own self-destructive ways. And we certainly do not want to walk in such a way, right? Because we're the new creation. We have no need of that anymore. Moving on to verse 20. It says, in such a way, the way the nations walk, you did not learn the Messiah, if indeed you have heard of him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. This phrase here in verse 20, you did not learn the Messiah. That is a really unique and interesting phrase in the whole New Testament, to learn the Messiah. Notice it doesn't say learn the ways of the Messiah and do those. It says learn the Messiah. You have to learn a person. That is a really different concept. When I think about learning a person, a thought came to mind. You guys are probably all familiar with the what would Jesus do bracelets, the WWJD bracelets. And if WWJD is your thing, cool, go for it. Like, don't let me ruin that for you. Because whoever came up with that has done a lot more positive influence on the world than I have ever done. (laughs) But I This example just comes to my mind a lot because I just have a little problem with the WWJD thing. So if I'm in a situation with someone and I look at my bracelet and I think, okay, this situation is difficult. This is an opportunity for the Lord to do something. What would Jesus do in this situation? My answer is always, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe he would stick his fingers in this person's ears. Or maybe he would stoop down and he would write in the sand with his finger. Or maybe he would flip their table. Maybe he would call this group of people a brood of vipers. I can't be completely sure exactly what he would do, but I do know who he is. I know that much. Um, Christianity is not a set prescription that you just play out in any given situation. If you're in this situation or anything like it, this is what you do. That's not what it is. Christianity is the living person of Jesus whose spirit lives inside of you and is constantly revealing truth to you, is constantly leading and guiding you in the way that you live your life. And the word also says that for those who believe, they will do all the things that Jesus did and even more. They will do even greater things. That's what the word says. And that's through the spirit. Like you can't look at your, what would Jesus do bracelet and come up with the greater things. Cause like, you don't even know what they are. You can't even conceive of them. The spirit has to lead you in that, in those things. Think of Jeremiah 31. No more will a man say to his neighbor, know the Lord for they will all know me because I will put my law in their minds and inscribe it on their hearts. That is us. The Lord has taken our heart of stone and he's given us a heart of flesh and he's inscribed that on our hearts. And before you say, because I've heard this so much and I've even said it before you say, I can't hear the voice of the Lord. Like I don't have that sensitivity to the spirit to know how he's directing me in any given situation. 
Just stop saying that. <laughs> Don't say that anymore. Before you say that, take some risk. Try and listen to him. And when you think you hear, lean into it. Step out, take some risk and do those things. Act on those things. Having a pre-programmed plan, deciding what you're going to do ahead of time, it seems like the safe option. And it seems like living by the Spirit and trying to listen to Him moment to moment, it feels insane a lot of the time. It feels crazy and insecure, unstable. But the truth of the matter is that you have never been better positioned or more secure than when you trust the leadership of the Spirit in every situation. That is perfect. It's right where you need to be. Acknowledging that you don't have it all together, you don't understand what may be coming, and you might not know exactly what to do when you get there. But you know who Jesus is, you know who the Spirit is, and that you can trust His leadership at all times. That's right where you need to be. And maybe you have experienced disappointment, or you've experienced what you feel like is failure when you thought that you listened. Man, have I lived this, and I know a lot of you have too. You thought you heard the voice of the Lord, and you thought you did what he told you to do. I have done this, and I think I had this assumption in my mind. It looks like, Lord, you preordained this. You told me to enter into this, and I listened, and I have done it, and it has not turned out the way I thought. It has not been easy. Why is this even happening? Have you, can you relate to any of that? And if that is you, if you've experienced that disappointment, you've experienced what you feel like is failure, you, the only solution is that you have to get back up, and you just have to continue to listen and continue to trust. And I'm always reminded, this really helps buoy me when I go through a situation like that. I think about Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. So Jesus is doing this teaching with a large group of disciples, not just his dedicated group of the 12, but he has this large group, and he's teaching them about how he is the bread of heaven. And he says to them, if you want to live forever, if you want eternal life, you have to drink my blood and you have to eat my flesh. And a lot of these people in this disciple group say, that is a hard teaching, and I, I can't get with that. And it says that many chose to abandon him at that point. They couldn't receive that teaching. And so Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter's words are something that, to me, they're just, <laughs> they're so powerful. It's something I turn to over and over again when I'm facing something that is a hard teaching, when I'm facing something that I'm like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't want to learn this lesson. I, I just don't want to. It's death to me. So this is what Peter says. He says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So when you face that struggle, when you feel yourself asking and saying, like, this is a hard teaching, I don't want to learn this, and I just want to turn and walk away in my bitterness and all of these things, just remember, to whom else are you going to go? He has the words of life. He is it. That is it. In him is all the wisdom and everything that you need. Don't turn away. Just get back up and <laughs> he will turn all of your ashes into beauty. It's just... 
It's just what he does. It's who he is. It's incredible. So the truth, the truth is in Jesus. It is in a person. It's not in a philosophy. It's not in a methodology. And it's not in a system. You'll never find it there. You're going to progressively discover truth as you follow him faithfully. As you put it into action, as you put your belief into action, you're going to discover more and more truth. So starting here in verse 22, Paul begins to talk about taking off the old humanity. And he's going to talk about putting on the new humanity. And um, let's look at the tense of this. Take off your old humanity. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new humanity. What tense are those words? Those are present tense words. So Paul's making it sound like this is something that we have to be actively involved in. We're taking off our old humanity. We're putting on the new. Present tense. Now, if you look at Colossians, remember we talked about how Colossians and Ephesians were probably written around the same time and they have a lot of overlap in concepts. So if you find the same concept in Colossians here in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. What tense is that? That's past tense. Paul's talking about it in Colossians like it's something that has already been accomplished. It's already been done. What I'm getting at here is this is a perfect picture of our now, not yet. Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen again, he's been resurrected, and he's ruling and reigning. And there are so many things that are just done and accomplished. And God is still working in us. We're still submitting ourselves to the Spirit. We're still working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And you can see both pictures portrayed. It has been done, and it is still being done. So all the way through verse 32, he starts to talk about the old humanity and the new humanity. And he goes on and he begins to do this bouncing back and forth thing um, inside of this theme of taking off the old humanity and putting on the new. He's saying, don't do this old thing, but do this new thing. He does it all the way through verse 32. And um, the Bible Project class on Ephesians broke it into this really nifty little chart that lays it out nicely for you, contrasting the old and the new. So Paul doesn't just tell you what is prohibited. He doesn't just say, stop doing all this stuff. But he gives you um, what is best. He gives you the substitute as a new creation, what you should be doing. Um, If you've ever taken a parenting class about how to bring up, you know, really littles, I've often heard them say, um, don't put so much influence on the prohibitive. Don't focus so much on telling them, don't do that. Stop doing that. But give them the positive. Tell them what you want them to do. Instead of saying, don't, don't uh, play with that sock. Say, please put the sock away in the drawer. And something about the way our minds work is we tend to focus on the prohibitive, but it's actually more productive if we focus on what we need to do instead of what we don't want to do. So if you look at it this way, it says, it's Paul's saying, it's not become someone different. It's act as you really are. 
I love the way they put that in the class. He's not saying you need to be something different because what you are is super broken. He's saying, no, the truest sense of your identity, reality is that you are new, new creation and you've been empowered to behave in such a way by the spirit who lives inside of you and is transforming you from the inside out. So act as you really are, not become something different. When you're a part of the new humanity, living like you're still dead is a contradiction of your identity. When you are a believer with the spirit living inside of you, living in these ways is in other places called double-mindedness. And it never delivers. It never gives you what you're seeking when you employ this old stuff. You just, you never get it. When you're dead, it makes sense to you. It makes sense to you to lie, to control things through being angry, um, to feel justified in your bitterness. Like when someone wrongs you, when you're dead in your transgression, it makes all the sense in the world to hang on to that and say, yeah, I'm bitter because this person was a jerk to me. Um, but in the new creation, things have been flipped. And that thing that you're grasping for by lying, by holding on to anger, by being bitter, that thing can only be attained by doing the new creation humanity, by speaking the truth, by offering compassion and forgiveness. In our carnal mindsets and in our fallen world, it makes absolutely no sense to love your enemy. It actually sounds idiotic. It sounds dangerous, outright dangerous. But in the kingdom, in the truest sense of reality, it is real freedom and real strength. That's what we saw Jesus exemplify over and over again. And to behave in the old ways, in the old humanity, is actually to forfeit your inheritance. To do all of these things when your spirit empowered to live in a totally different way. It's to give up something that's been won for you. And it's really tragic. I mean, I know that we all struggle and that we're all in a growth process and that sometimes, you know, we slip and we make mistakes. But really, we've been empowered to live a completely different life through the spirit. And notice that the old humanity things, all of these things make the new humanity completely impossible. It's not just that they're wrong but they have no place in the new humanity because they'll bring death and they'll totally destroy it. They just, they have no place in God's kingdom. Going back to Colossians, you'll see that when we're renewed through the spirit, it results in this community in Colossae in which there is no distinction in which there is no longer any division between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. The renewal results in this perfect unity, and there's just no place for the old humanity in that. So this going back and forth between the old and the new begins to establish a pattern um, for the rest of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul is going to stick with this theme of comparing and contrasting. And if you look at the um, design graphic here, so we're over here, and this is what we're talking about today. And you can see how the rest of the letter is structured. He's going to use new examples and different metaphors to continue to do this back and forth. Um, he is going to talk about contrasting dark and light. And he's also going to use uh, foolishness 
as compared to wisdom in this spirit-filled humanity. That's a little bit of what the letter is going to look like from here on out. So before we move on to the end, there's just one other small thing I want to point out. Right here in verse 24. To put on the new humanity, which has been created in accordance with God. To be created in accordance with God. This means something really important. It means that when you are reborn, when you put on the new humanity, you image God as he originally intended. You remember um, in the last couple of weeks, BJ has been talking about creation and what we were originally intended for when we were created, that we were intended for this fellowship with God, this partnership with our creator. So when we're reborn, um, when we put on that new humanity, we image God as he originally intended intended in Genesis 1. You get to, through Jesus's victory and through the Spirit, enter into, again, that kind of union with your Creator. And that's something that's really incredible. You are created again as something new that can experience union with God. So if you grabbed a packet from the back you will notice that there is like a little exercise there. Um, I didn't have time to actually go through it today from up front. So I also really want to encourage you, um, anytime I'm up here teaching, I'm not just wanting to teach a certain set of concepts and have that be your only takeaway. I also want you to see how the Bible is so interconnected to itself how it reinforces itself over and over again, and how it works um, to build this entire story, this whole picture. So there's three times here um, in this section of chapter four where Paul alludes to an Old Testament passage. Um, Some of them are almost quotes. This last one that's in Isaiah is um, not an exact quote, but it's the same carryover of concepts. So you'll see in your packet, you basically have these Um, this graph um, that shows you where the matchup is. And then I put a little section of notes that'll just help you notice where the parallels are, some of the similarities. And really what I want you to do is just read that section of your Old Testament and think about and meditate on why Paul chose to use that particular Old Testament uh, passage here in this section of Ephesians. And if the notes I put in there are not helpful, just stop reading them and just ask the Spirit to show you whatever it is he'd like to show you in that particular passage of the Old Testament. So I hope you enjoy that or take that home. So let's go back and finish up by looking at the beginning of chapter 5 here. This section, the way they portrayed this And the class I took on Ephesians was awesome. I I really loved this. And to me, it was a caricature of so many things that we experience in Christianity. They say that this um, section in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore become imitators of God as beloved children. They talk about this like it's an invitation. They say this movement ends with an invitation from the Spirit to become an imitator of God. And I love to think about all so many elements of Christianity as an invitation. And that's really what it is, isn't it? Because it's all about faith. 
So in any given situation, Jesus is out on the water and we're in the boat. Whatever the situation is, he's always just saying, come to me, trust me and come to me. And then we have to, you know, we can stay in the boat if we want to. But when you look at him and you connect eyes with him out on the water there, you want to go. Like you just have to get over yourself, but (laughs) you have to step out. And I love that idea of an invitation. And there was a particular time in my life where I really experienced this. And the Lord had laid something before me. It was an opportunity to partner with him and something. And it was scary. It was a faith move as things like that often are. And the sense that I had in that moment was he wasn't coercing me or compelling me or threatening me. Like, if you don't do this, I'm not going to love you as much and you're going to miss out and all these. Like, there was none of that. And I honestly, to be truthful with you, kind of expected it. But he didn't do any of that. What happened was he just laid this out before me and then he let me see him in my spirit. And it's so weird to say that he let me see him because it had nothing to do with my physical eyes. It was a sense that I had in my spirit and I was looking on him and he was so lovely. Like he was so beautiful. And I experienced such an adoration for him that I felt like I couldn't resist or at the very least I didn't want to. It was like a wooing. It was like he was wooing me. He was really standing out there on the water and saying, come to me. Like, come join me in this adventure. It's going to be worth it. It might be a little scary, but come out to me on the water. And I did. And I tell you that story and it sounds powerful, but that was like the one in 500 that I actually acted on. You know, there was probably a whole bunch of others where I stayed in the boat. But increasingly, I want to keep my eyes so fixed on Jesus that his beauty is just transfixing. And he's drawing me out and I'm responding to that. I just want to get out and say yes to more of his invitations. What would it be like if every time we got that invitation from the Lord that we acted on it, that we said yes to him and that we stepped out of the boat to him. So we really want to say yes when he invites us to become imitators of God increasingly on higher levels. Uh, To be an imitator of God, and this is important, is tied directly to walking in love. Become an imitator of God and walk in love just as the Messiah loved us. They're very intimately tied together. And how did the Messiah love us? He gave himself up. He gave himself up as a sacrifice. Self-giving. That's how Jesus loved And love is such in the kingdom that it sums up things. It has this quality where it kind of brings all things together. Think about it. Um, What's the two greatest commandments? How are the commandments summed up? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Think about these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Love has this summing up quality. Being a part of the new humanity is all of the things that we've talked about, but it's summed up by increasingly loving like Jesus did and like he does. To give ourselves up as an offering to God. It's the upside down kingdom that we've talked about where true freedom and true strength is found in self-giving, is found in offering our very selves to God to be used in whatever way that he sees fit. Paul saw loving and giving like Jesus as completely parallel 
to being an imitator of God. If you're going to imitate God, you are going to love like Jesus did. And this was foundational for the conviction that he built his entire life and his ministry on. It was so important, this self-sacrificial, self-giving love. And he sums it up perfectly in Galatians 2. And we'll end with this today, where he says, I have been crucified with the Messiah, and I no longer live But the Messiah lives in me. And what I now live in the flesh, by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So we give ourselves, we offer ourselves up to God because we're imitators of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word to us, Lord. We thank you that you speak to us through it, Lord, that you're growing us and edifying us, that you're transforming and renewing our minds, Lord. We thank you that we can say yes to your invitation and become imitators of you increasingly, Lord. Help us to yield to your spirit whatever situation we're in, Lord. Quicken our ears. Help us to be sensitive to what it is you're telling us to do, Lord. Give us the boldness to step out of the boat and to come to you, wherever you are, Lord. We just want to show the world who you are. We want to live boldly for you. So we submit to you in everything, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.